This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 76. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, Demystifying Depositions by Written Questions. Hey, everybody. I hope, as always, that you're having a great day and a great week. Today, I really just wanted to pose a question for your consideration, and it's really just this. Why haven't you ever used Rule 31 or its state equivalent, Depositions by Written Questions? Now, if you haven't, you're certainly not alone. I know many lawyers who have been practicing for more than 20 years who've never used Federal Rule 31 or its state equivalent. And the majority of states have an identical or substantially similar rule, usually following the same numbering scheme, but not always. I also know quite a number of lawyers, quite frankly, also practicing in excess of 20 years who've never taken a corporate representative deposition under what's commonly referred to as Rule 30b-6, or again, the state equivalent. And that's a fantastic tool for gathering information from party and non-party organizations. There is a great deal more to the art and science of world-class deposition practice, taking and defending, than just the primary rule everywhere that provides for the taking of oral depositions. In fact, there is an astonishing number of tools out in the deposition tool shed that the creators of the federal rules designed just for you and me for the purpose of gathering information from witnesses. But rule 31 of all of them is treated like one of those rusty tools in the very back of the shed, behind some scary cobwebs, behind grandma's folding table, behind the bikes we rode as kids. Nobody ever pulls it out. Maybe they think it's just for records custodians if you have to, or maybe just for prisoners who can't get out to a court reporter's office. To be sure, they are useful for records custodians' depositions to authenticate, and I'm sure inmates find them useful as well. They're also useful when it's critical to preserve resources, especially if there isn't a convenient way to take the witness's deposition by video, telephone, or in person. But here's another example, and there are many more. Suppose you have a witness who's out of town that you know to be very sensitive or vulnerable, especially where you've already vetted the witness's testimony, you've already talked to the witness, so you have a sense for what they're going to say and how they would react in a deposition setting. You know the witness is going to be friendly and you know you have an opposing lawyer that may be abusive or threatening, or perhaps there's something about the witness that suggests that the witness might not say everything they know in a room full of lawyers. Every litigator who has ever handled depositions in even a single case will know that there are witnesses out there who will not speak freely in a room full of lawyers. Those very same witnesses will talk to us freely off the record, openly and without hesitation. But put those folks in a room full of lawyers where they feel intimidated or threatened or fearful for their careers, and you're just not going to get the same testimony. So it's something to think about. I encourage you to use Rule 31 or your state equivalent at least a few times over the next year, if you've never done so, just to gain experience in the mechanics of the process. Get a feel for how it works so that when the time arises, you'll have that demonstrated expertise and experience to use them when needed, or at least to explain to your clients or the other lawyers on your team what that option is and why and when it works or doesn't. Be the one person in the room who's been there, done that, and can explain from experience 
the pluses and minuses. And frankly, if you're in a competitive work environment where the raw demonstration of advanced litigation skills and talents is a piece of the puzzle for your advancement, it's useful to be that one person who can talk from experience about the array of deposition types and why one or another might be best in a given situation. The drafters of the rules gave us all lots of options. Many lawyers follow the standard path, which is the basic rule for oral depositions. They've just never strayed off to see what's just beyond the path. So because there is that array of deposition tools available to you, you ought to be familiar with them and have mastery over each of them. It's no different, frankly, than what professional athletes do. Of course, they all have their favorite pitch, throw, or move, but they became professionals by gaining mastery and expertise on all of the tricks, moves, pitches, throws available to them in their given position. They don't pass on a specific skill just because it's not their favorite or because it's not their best option. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what Rule 31 offers. This type of deposition, deposition by written questions, differs from oral depositions in some critical respects. First, you draft the questions in advance and circulate them to the other party's attorneys. They then have a certain number of days to assert objections and to draft and circulate their own cross questions. You then have, if you're the lawyer who's noticed the deposition, you then have a certain number of days to draft objections to their questions and to draft your redirect. When that's all done, the questions are then sent to the officer, typically the court reporter, who's going to read the questions out loud directly to the deponent and who will then capture the witness's answer. There is no live examination by any lawyer of the witness in this kind of deposition. There are no live objections. It's just the reporter asking questions and the witness answering them. One court that looked at this issue even said that lawyers are not permitted in the room. That's the Pueblo of Jemez case in the show notes. And by the way, we put together a bonus PDF for this episode for you that will be tremendously helpful to you in evaluating how this process works. That bonus PDF consists of filings from the Pueblo case, and it contains the original notice of deposition with the actual written questions to be asked of the witness, the opposing party's objections to the questions and their own cross questions, a motion for protective order filed by the deposing party, asking the court to exclude all lawyers from the deposition, the response to that motion uh, in opposition, and the eventual court ruling, which in fact excluded all lawyers. So the PDF is about 65 pages. It's the complete package showing how the parties framed their questions and objections, how the fight over whether the lawyers could participate live evolved and was argued, and the court ruling and reasoning. The court said the rule doesn't appear to contemplate attendance by lawyers. Uh, lawyers can't object live. They can't ask question live, so there's no reason for them to be there. So you can see how great lawyers actually handled this issue. So that bonus PDF is a fantastic resource as an educational tool for you. So let's talk about the Pueblo of Jemez case. And I use this as the centerpiece of this episode because the lawyers on both sides are top flight litigators. In one corner, it's the US Department of Justice. In the other, it's a first tier private sector law firm. 
So these kinds of lawyers tend to raise the right arguments for and against, so it's well litigated and the issues are sharply defined. Okay, so the issue of depositions upon written questions came up in this lawsuit originally filed in 2012 by a federally recognized Indian tribal community known as the Pueblo of Jemez, that's J-E-M-E-Z, in New Mexico. The purpose of the lawsuit apparently was to quiet title. In other words, to establish the Pueblo of Jemez's exclusive right to use certain property in a national preserve. By the way, this case continues to be actively litigated and at least part of the case is currently on appeal to the Tenth Circuit. So at some point in the case, one of the defendants, the United States, served a notice of deposition by written questions on a non-party Indian tribe and expressing concern that some of the testimony by tribal members would be very sensitive. The lawyers from the Department of Justice filed a motion titled Expedited Motion for a Protective Order Prohibiting In-Person Attendance at the Deposition uh, of the Tribe in Question. In its papers, the U.S. says, uh, essentially, Judge, there's absolutely no reason for anyone other than the deponent and the court reporter to attend. And it cites language from the rule itself that says the party who noticed the deposition must notify all other parties when it's completed. So the United States says to the judge, look, if the rule contemplated people attending, there would be no reason for the rule to say that the noticing party has to tell everyone that the deposition has come to an end. They'd know that if the rule contemplated uh, them being there in person. Interesting point. So the tribe's lawyers responded with some great arguments of their own. They said, look, what the United States is essentially asking is that the rule of sequestration, which doesn't even apply to depositions in the federal court system, be applied here to prevent not just other witnesses, but even the lawyers for the parties from attending depositions in their own case. And they also point out that the plaintiff tribe could have simply set its own oral deposition of the witnesses. So there's no reason to exclude them. District judge here agreed with the United States saying that based on his own research, the lawyers should not attend. Uh, Chief among the judge's reasoning, I should point out, Uh, was that depositions by written questions follow a precise lockstep procedure under the rules. And there just isn't an opportunity for lawyers to ask live questions or make objections in this kind of deposition. They literally can't say anything to the witness while the deposition is in progress. Again, our production team has put together a bonus PDF for this episode consisting of the key court filings on this issue from that case. If you'd like the bonus PDF, shoot us an email at depositionpodcast at jimgarrytylaw.com and in the subject line, just say something like, send me the episode 76 bonus PDF. That's good enough and we'll shoot it right back to you by email. All right, let me briefly explain again how depositions on written questions work and then I'll give you some practice pointers and we'll be done. Rule 31 explains exactly how things unfold. If you're the party taking the deposition, you serve your notice of taking deposition with your written questions on every other party in the case, with the notice obviously stating the name of the deponent and the deponent's address. And of course, you're gonna identify the court reporter and the court reporter's address uh, that will be asking the questions and transcribing the answers. Second, the other parties to the case, once they get your notice and your questions, uh, can then serve 
their objections, form objections typically, to your questions and serve their own cross questions within two weeks after being served with your notice and original questions. Finally, as the noticing lawyer, you can serve redirect questions within seven days after being served the cross questions and recross questions can be served on you within seven days after your redirect. Once the time period has run and all of the questions are in hand, you then send them to the court reporter and what happens next is that the court reporter will swear the witness in and take down the testimony, of course, at the appointed date and time in response to the questions and then certify the deposition just like a regular one. And there you have it. Now, here are a few other things I want to point out. While they may seem like interrogatories, they most definitely are not. The court reporter is going to present the questions and while the deponent may have been provided a copy ahead of time by someone, which isn't necessarily a bad thing depending on the witness and what you expect, the deponent will be answering the questions live directly from the court reporter without interference or objection from any lawyer. So in sharp contrast to interrogatories, uh, which for the most part are usually answered or refined by lawyers, not the party answering them, the answers to depositions by written question come direct out of the witness's mouth. I should also mention a minor but important point, which is that stylistically the rule refers to this inquiry posed to the witness as questions, not interrogatories. It is an important stylistic difference. These are legitimate deposition questions. And here are some other points to give thought to. Number one, there is no limit on the number of questions that you can pose in a deposition by written question to a deponent. We've got some cases in the show notes that confirm exactly that. In the Pueblo of Jemez case I talked about, the U.S. served 89 written questions to be asked of the deponent, not an extraordinary number. The plaintiff tribe uh, then served 70 cross questions. Either side could have asked substantially more. The typical live deposition obviously involves hundreds of questions. Again, the rule, Rule 31, imposes no limit. Another point. Just like an oral deposition, you can make objections to the form under the federal rules, it's 32 DC3, to the form of the written questions as long as you do that within the time provided for service of your own follow-up questions. And you'll see the time frames laid out. It's either seven days or 14 days for making form objections. Under rule, uh, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 31A5, it's either seven days or 14 days, depending on what party you represent. And as to any objections other than form, you can make them later as you would at trial under Rule 32B or its state equivalent. All right, so some practice pointers from the perspective of taking a deposition by written questions. Actively consider the rule if you have depositions that you think might benefit from a live examination by the officer without live objections or live follow-up. Actively consider it if you've used up your interrogatories under your state or federal rules, but would like to ask lots more questions of a party. Remember, as I mentioned, there is no limit built into the rule on the number of questions that can be asked. That's the Owens and the Baker case in the show notes. Another point, consider whether the witness has a soft or vulnerable personality, but may have critical information they may be willing to share with you. Rule 31 might be ideal for that. If you know the witness will be straightforward, but if you know the witness may be intimidated by a room full of lawyers, then maybe Rule 31 is the right tool. 
Here's something else to think about. Remember that Rule 31 has provisions that apply to corporate representative depositions as well. It just doesn't have to be an oral 30B6 deposition. Under Rule of Civil Procedure 31A4, you can use depositions by written questions for corporate representatives, just as you would a live deposition under Rule 30B6. Still another point, you can use depositions by written questions with non-parties. Now remember that under Rule 33 and most state court rules, you cannot serve written interrogatories on non-parties. You can take their depositions, their oral depositions, and you can subpoena them to come and bring documents under Rule 45, but you can't serve written interrogatories on non-parties. But if you wish you could, then use Rule 31, or at least consider it, as your interrogatories on those non-parties. Same thing, different rule. Also, if you're going to take one, consider also simultaneously not just noticing the deposition, but seeking a protective order, like the United States did in the Pueblo of Jemez case, to exclude counsel from attending. All right, on the flip side, if you are defending or expect to defend an upcoming deposition on written questions, you may wish to clarify as soon as you learn about the plan by the opposing party, you may wish to insist on clarification whether they intend to seek your exclusion. And if that's the case, you may want to look at the arguments made by the plaintiff tribe in the case I discussed as well. You may also want to object to the taking of the deposition in this manner and articulate reasons why a live deposition is important. Here's another critical point. If you're in a jurisdiction where a witness cannot be deposed twice, such as in federal court, argue that you'll suffer prejudice, or at least consider the argument you'll suffer prejudice if you are in fact excluded from ever questioning and observing the witness live. Both Rule 30 and Rule 31 make crystal clear that a witness deposed under either rule cannot be deposed a second time, no matter who took it the first time, unless all parties consent or unless the court allows it. So if it looks like the opposing party who's noticing the deposition is going to seek your exclusion and the exclusion of other lawyers, either because the witness is vulnerable, maybe someone who's elderly, maybe a child, a victim of assault, so if you sense that the court might exclude everyone from participating, consider making the argument that you would never otherwise, absent court consent or consent of the parties, be able to personally observe the witness's demeanor and credibility as they testify before trial. And here's something else to think about that I would suggest that I didn't see raised by the tribe's lawyers in the Pueblo of Jemez case. Uh, maybe they did, I just didn't see it in their papers. If the court suggests that it's going to exclude you from attending in person, consider asking the court to allow a live video feed so that you can observe the witness remotely. The camera can be placed in an inconspicuous location. There can be agreement or the court can order that no party is allowed to activate their video or audio, but that will allow you in an inconspicuous and inoffensive manner to observe the witness as you would if you were there in person. I can't think of a good reason why a judge wouldn't allow that, but you certainly want to put that argument in there if you think you might be excluded uh, physically. All right, so there you have it. I would tell you, as I said at the beginning, it's really critical to develop experience in every facet of your deposition practice. And I would also put this in the category of best practices to experiment with the different options that the rules allow 
and determine for yourself based on actual experience what might work and when. All right, that's it for today's show. We've got, as always, uh, case citations and parentheticals to all of the decisions I've mentioned and a few more in the show notes. And again, if you'd like that bonus PDF that contains the key filings uh, from the Pueblo of Jemez case, shoot us an email at depositionpodcast at jimgeardylaw.com and put something in the subject line that just says, send me the episode 76 PDF and we'll get that out to you immediately. Thanks as always for listening and we'll talk to you again soon.